Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskis. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us for this GenCast today. We have a really uh, exciting group of panelists that we're going to talk about some regulatory issues. So if you ladies could introduce yourself to the Gen audience and tell us a little bit more about uh, who you are. Hi, I'm Natika Calhoun, a senior regulatory consultant here at Millipor Sigma. Hi, I'm Manjula Isola, and I'm also a senior regulatory consultant here at Millipor Sigma. Well, Natika, Manjula, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate uh, speaking with you both. Uh, so let's start off. We'll jump right into the questions and get rolling. I know that our audience is very interested in a lot of regulatory uh, issues that are facing them uh, and the work that they do. So the first question I have is, what is the state of the regulatory landscape for cell and gene therapies currently? It is evolving, Jeff. These are novel therapeutic modalities. So globally, regulatory agencies are actively issuing guidance. There was a new draft guidance from the FDA on neurodegenerative diseases this year, and one on chemistry manufacturing and controls, also known as CMC, for gene therapies last year. The EMA also recently updated guidance for genetically modified cells and has a draft for the manufacture of sterile products, better known as Annex 1. The regulations promote a risk-based approach and the use of innovative technologies in the manufacture of these therapies. Well, wow, so that, you know, that's a, quite a bit of activity on the regulatory front. Um, Natika, maybe you could tell us how things have been different due to the pandemic. Sure, in response to the pandemic, the regulatory agencies have issued COVID-related guidance for pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical production. And so there was a general GMP-related guidance for industry by the FDA in June of 2020, and then a specific cell and gene therapy guidance that was released in January of this year. So the FDA requires firms like ours to perform a viral risk assessment for manufacturing. And in this case, it addresses SARS-CoV-2 viral contamination and the prevention of it. And so in the event that SARS-CoV-2 infects cells, then firms need to assure that the virus would be cleared during steps in the manufacturing process. And uh, in addition, we also have to address any possible impact to the continuity of supply so, for instance, how to deal with the impact of a high level of absenteeism due to the virus. Um, and that's most notably aimed at the commercial cell and gene therapies. So it's a really good point, Natika, you mentioned about the impact these might have. And recently we heard from uh, the head of the FDA Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, or CBER, Dr. Peter Marks, who identified the gene therapy manufacturing bottlenecks as something that kept him up at night until of course COVID replaced it in 2020. Um, so, you know, maybe you guys can talk about why manufacturing of cell and gene therapies are considered a bottleneck. Jeff, this is because GMP manufacturing facilities and infrastructure are very expensive and there just aren't enough of these to meet the current demand. What happens is that when in clinical trials, firms are so focused on proving safety and efficacy that they can't really afford to build new facilities. So to deal with this, they outsource 
to experience contract development and manufacturing organizations or CDMOs to help manufacture either key starting materials or the drug substance itself. As clinical successes drove demand, the availability of reliable manufacturing capacity became even more scarce. So Manjula, that's a pretty interesting point you bring up. And I guess my next question would be that is if, the, if there's still a bottleneck, uh, is there anything your company's doing to help meet the need? I'll jump in uh, here, Jeff. There, so we have expanded several times so that we can produce more for our clients, um, not just over the years, but recently. And now we're building new capacity and there are many companies doing the same. Oh, great. Well, so that's a good news. So maybe you can tell me if there are any specific challenges unique to the manufacturing of cell and gene therapies then. Yes, of course, Jeff. One particular challenge is getting raw and starting materials of appropriate quality and with a reliable supply. As there is a limited opportunity for downstream purification, there is the need for risk mitigation upstream, which includes using raw materials of consistent quality, traceability, and full documentation, which you can get by manufacturing under GMPs. The challenge is that critical reagents are often available only as research grade. And also, um, animal origin materials have to be used often. And in such case, regulators expect multiple viral mitigation steps to ensure patient safety. So, Manjula, does this also include cell banks? Absolutely, Jeff. Regulators expect cell banks used to manufacture producer cells and plasmids to be manufactured under GMP and fully characterized for identity and purity. To help with this, uh, working with experienced testing organizations such as Viralliance for the manufacture, characterization, and safety testing helps meet regulatory expectations. That's true. And in addition to those challenges, there are also several manufacturing challenges our clients have had over the years. And I'll add as an example of that, many cell cell and gene therapy manufacturing processes are not very efficient. And so there are often low yields, which means it can take multiple runs to make enough doses for a clinical trial. So Natika, maybe you could explain that a little bit more. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, as a comparison, one monoclonal antibody run, for example, can treat thousands of patients, but personalized medicines are manufactured at a much smaller scale. So we have a client uh, that can only treat about six patients with the yield from one viral vector batch. So multiple GMP batches are required so that they can dose the desired number of patients in their clinical trials. And so you can imagine that the expense increases quickly for this kind of treatment relative to others where one batch may be plenty. Yeah, I mean, that would be a pretty uh, big expense, I would imagine. But so how does this also affect timelines? Well, our clients value speed to market, um, as you can expect. So they're often unwilling to make any significant changes to the process for their first candidate in the pipeline, because those changes can delay approval, which ultimately slows the delivery of their therapies to patients in need. Right, Natika. 
Many of these patients are children and adults having rare diseases with unmet medical needs. All right, so that, that's a pretty good point there. And so as a CDMO, um, you provide development services. You know, how does this have an impact on the speed to market? Well, once we take a look at our client's process early in the development stages, um, based on our knowledge of successful commercial processes, we then offer suggestions to optimize their process, increase their yield, and help to develop control strategies early on. It's always been interesting that even though clients may agree with our process improvement data and suggestions, oftentimes they pick and choose improvements because they don't have the time to fully optimize before they hit the market with a promising therapy. Well, that kind of makes sense, but so maybe you could explain a little bit more how that exactly works. Okay, so their first therapy may have limited process improvements. And then future pipeline candidates may get more optimization, uh, such as growing suspension cultures in a bioreactor, which can reduce space limitations and improve the yield, rather than continuing to grow adherent cells. And I'll add that the cost factor is also significant. Um, If a process is validated, even if it's not yet fully optimized, it can be evaluated for commercial use, um, which means the regulators can come and check it out and they can possibly um, move forward uh, to the approval stages. So post-approval changes are expected during the product life cycle and the industry is aware that there's time to optimize the non-critical steps later. All right. Well, I get that. So let me switch gears for a minute and let's say, you know, ask you a question to the extent of what do you think has made you guys successful as a commercial manufacturer? We have nearly 30 years of expertise in GMP production of viral gene therapies. So through this time, we have worked with almost 300 clients and helped them through numerous clinical campaigns and also received commercial approval. And in the process, we have worked with a variety of virus types and indications and have built our knowledge base. This knowledge is key to our success in delivering products that meet not only our clients needs, but also regulatory expectations. So you mentioned regulatory expectations and something I know that the gen audience is interested in. So maybe I can ask, how do you work with your clients to ensure successful regulatory inspections and approval? Well, I think Manjula said it most effectively. Really, it's our depth of experience since the 90s that gives our clients the advantage. And we've worked with many, many virus types and processes, and we've been on the forefront of the commercial approval process. So our approach to inspections is to focus on compliance and quality, and then is also guided by the evolving regulatory and customer expectations. Really, it's based on continuous improvement, and over the decades, the sheer numbers of client audits and regulatory inspections have tested and strengthened our facilities and our quality system. So then as a follow-up in working with these clients who have been so close to commercial approval over the last few years, you know, have you guys noticed any increase in expectations from regulators? Good question. So yes, I have um, specifically the requirements for risk assessment and contamination control have evolved over the years. 
and they've changed to accommodate really the growth in the industry, which can include new indications now, new technology that we're using, and process improvements. Um, it also could be that in the filings submitted over the years, they've seen certain deficiencies. Um, the agencies have seen certain deficiencies that they want to address and provide guidance to the industry to help bridge those gaps. And a recent example of agency updates that were designed to help is the CMC guidance for INDs that was issued last year. And I can think of another example that has proved helpful during the inspections, during our recent inspections, and that's the Annex 1 requirement for a contamination control strategy dossier that ties together all of a site's existing controls. And a benefit that we've seen is that the dossier becomes a much simpler way to present key information to regulators. So in general, we would have 15 to 20 different documents to show. And um, now that we have this one document, it becomes a handy summary during an inspection. So speaking of inspections, um, working for Jen for the past few years, as I have, as an editor coming across a bunch of regulatory articles that we discuss with our audience, a question that comes up pretty often uh, is, when do you think is the best time to prepare for an inspection and approval? So as a CDMO, the answer to that question is as early as possible, but really the constant communication with the client helps us to be prepared. And... The first step really is that clients need to inform us of their regulatory strategy, which often includes fast track timelines for commercial launch. So the more that we're in the know with where they're going and when they expect to get there, we can start that preparation process. And then we begin to prepare for the inspections when in the manufacturing process, we're on the path to the PPQ, which is the process performance qualification or validation. And uh, that requires uh, multiple layers of cross-functional expertise so that we can get their process to a uh, predictable and, and validated state. That's so true, Natika. A lot goes into supporting inspections. Should we also mention that inspections during the pandemic have been different? <laughs> yes, that's a great point. So as the pandemic picked up steam, some on-site inspections were postponed or done virtually. So we've had agencies that postponed um, for April of 2020, and then recently they postponed the 2021 uh, inspection, so for a second time. And so this means that over the last year, the industry overall has had less feedback from regulators due to the pandemic and the restrictions in travel. Naturally, virtual inspections are more heavily based on written procedures than the observations of real-time production, which the regula regulators prefer to do. That's why they come on site. Um, so it really remains to be seen how smoothly the regular on-site inspections will go once they're resumed. Yeah, definitely. We've seen with lots of stuff that we talk about at Jen that obviously the pandemic has affected many, many uh, organizations, but it seems like you guys are really pushing forward with a lot of progress and it's pretty exciting to say the least. Um, so maybe you guys could give us uh, or give the Jen audience uh, a couple key takeaways and final thoughts to wrap up this podcast. 
Sure. From my side, Jeff, uh, some key takeaway points are that the regulatory landscape is evolving as we speak and that manufacturing continues to be a bottleneck. The quality of raw materials and the manufacturing process yields also remain challenges. Both the regulators and the industry are learning with every new therapy and making very important strides in improving this situation though. And I'll add that the CDMOs are responding to the bottleneck by increasing capacity and also developing platform solutions. What's great is that cell and gene therapy is now a proven therapeutic modality and the industry is really stepping up by collaborating to develop lots of best practices. And for us, it's really exciting to see this progress. And finally, for any listeners that have questions about how we can assist with their gene therapy manufacturing or regulatory needs, I'd recommend visiting our website at emdmillipore.com forward slash gene therapy manufacturing. Or for those of you outside of North America, merkmillipore.com forward slash gene therapy manufacturing. Well, Natika, Manjula, I really appreciate you guys joining me for this GenCast. Um, I think our audience was really kind of interested in learning some of the regulatory landscape as it's currently going on for cell and gene therapies. And we want to thank you for sharing all this information with us. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to participate. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Pogaliskas. 